0: Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the five elders here at Mount Helen Community Church. All right, we're going to do a trivia question right off the bat. Okay, first one to answer this question. Here we go. What movie is this? Go. Oh, I knew it. I knew. I knew you would be first, Chris Helseth. That's a great movie. Back, I love this movie when I was in the 80s. Uh, it's not a movie if you have small children to show to. Don't, don't show this movie to them. Um, <clears throat> the reason I love this movie... The Breakfast Club is because it is a snapshot into the different caricatures of cliques in high school. Left to right, it is the rebel, the jock, the recluse, the popular girl, and the nerd. Now, I had there were all of these groups in when I was in high school, and except I had there was there were more than that. Than we have. So let me talk a little bit about more than those. Okay, so this is the first group. Uh, We called them the Grubs. Uh, They were the shop kids. And they were typically defined by mullets, fuzzy black mustaches, because they were trying to grow them out, black Metallica shirts, or Iron Maiden, just depends, and skinny jeans and wallets with chains on them. Now, it may be a little different from when you were in high school, but I, this is what it was. And they were all over the place. They were the shop kids, the garage kids, the, the grease monkeys. Um, then we also had the jocks and the popular girls, uh, also known as the hot girls. Now, were you, were you a hot girl in high school? No, you weren't. Okay. No, she, she denies that. Okay. All right. But they were usually paired together. Okay. Then you had the band kids. You were a band kid. I knew it. Yes. Okay. You had the overtly Christian kids that they stood in the hallway and they prayed together. Uh, You had the nerds, of course. You had the farm kids and you always knew the farm kids because you could smell them coming. And then, of course, you had the rodeo kids. Does anybody know who that is? That's Jason. Jason. That's Jason when he was in high school, middle school. Okay. Well, you know, I never, you never know. Okay. So where I confess that I was kind of a chameleon. I was in a, a lot of these groups. Uh, just, I was whatever I needed to be to fit in. Okay. So I was part of the Christian kids and the nerds and the choir kids. Okay. And so whatever place that you went to or whatever time or place that you're in you find circles of group to self-identify in them, whether you're it's intentionally or not. You're finding groups of like-minded kids, and it began even farther back than that. So whether you want to self-identify with someone or you're just trying to fit in, when I was in the second grade, there was this group of really cool second graders, but you couldn't be in the group unless you wore satin bomber jacket. Yep, satin bomber jacket. You're like, what? And the people, uh, why would you need to fit into wear satin? You just did, okay. And if you didn't have one, you're not in. And then fast forward a couple of years, and that became these. How many of you remember these? Do you remember these? Oh, <laughs> clam- oh yeah, clam diggers, jams, shorts, board shorts. And if I wear them, then I might be able to fit in, be accepted, and be a part of a group. Did you also have to wear the oh, yeah, the jacket. You know what I'm talking about. There's, that's never been more pronounced than it is right now. Because now with the internet, we have segmented ourselves and separated further and further into the media that we consume. We, because of the tracking the social media, they just show us what we want to see. And so we get involved in different groups, and we want to feel included. So whatever I'm feeling, I can find a group I can fit in. So, do you think that you might be transgender? There's a group for you. Are you a conspiracy theorist? Yep. We got internet sites and people that are going to fan the flames. Do you like to dress and act like an animal? They're called furries. Yes, they're out there for you. But, you know, th- those are extreme examples. So, but what if you like hunting? Yeah, I, I love hunting. Yeah, so, so I can find groups to fit into. Or maybe you like anime. Maybe you're really into anime. There's, there's whole groups of people that, that just love, that love anime. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Okay? Or maybe you're into football. My life is football. For these guys, their life is football. Because we're all looking around at the world, people want to know where they fit. They want identity. To answer the question, who am I? How do I give my life meaning? Where do I belong? And we all want to belong. When we come here on a Sunday morning... Yes, we want to explore spiritual issues. Yes, we want to know God. Yes, we want to worship him. Yes, we want to grow in our faith. But we also want to find a place to belong, to be embraced, to be seen, to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, to be a part of like-minded individuals traveling along the same path. And that's part of our mission here at Mount Helena, building community. It's even a mandate in the Bible. That we come together and we love one another. And maybe I just, I want to identify with these people. But when someone comes up to you and asks, who are you? Hi, I'm Jeff. Nice to meet you. How do you identify yourself? Oh, I'm Clark and I like biscuits and waffles. I did that for my son. He liked that. Um, how do you identify yourself? It really depends on the context where you are, doesn't it? So if I'm, in, if I'm in France and someone asks me, who are you? I'm probably going to identify myself by my name and my nationality. I'm an American. If I'm at work, I'm going to identify myself a separate way. If I am here, I might end to identify myself as an elder. And it can be different from everyone, anything from my name to my job, where I live, who's in my family, I'm a dad, I'm a mom, what I like, who I spend time with, and in more recent history, whom I'm attracted to. And for the most part in our culture, when we identify ourselves, it's usually with things that we have chosen for ourselves. I do this, therefore I am this. I'm a graphic designer. I do graphic design, therefore I am a graphic designer. I make this much money, therefore I am this. I married this human, and then we made all of these small little humans, and so therefore I'm a husband and a dad. But you know, it wasn't always like that. We it's just been recent history that we identify ourselves with the things that we have chosen for ourselves. For most of human history, you were born into your identity. You were born into a family, an economic situation, a social class, an ethnic group. That's who I am. I was given a vocation by my father and his father and his father. I was given the family farm or trade. Or if I'm a woman, I'm a childbearer and I raise <clears throat> children. I'm a caretaker. I'm given a spouse. I'm given a name. I'm given a religion. I'm given an inheritance. I didn't have a choice. And did you know that outside of our Western world, for the most part, that is still true today. But when the Western world entered into the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, much of humanity, for the first time, were given options to choose. I choose to work in a factory rather than the family farm. I have the opportunity to get more education and work in a white-collar job. And with choices and flexibility and freedom, we have been given more freedom to choose not only what we wanted to do, but what we wanted to be. So whatever I want to be, I now am. Whatever I feel like today is my true self. My family, my history, my lineage, my biology is divorced from reality. I make my reality. My behaviors and my feelings create who I am. I feel this, therefore I am this. I behave this way, therefore I am this. Your feelings create your identity. Now, this ideology has completely shaped the Western world. Do you see it? I'm seeing a lot of heads nodding yes. This ideology has grown into the most pervasive and guiding moral philosophy of our age. It now dominates our Western culture. It's called this. It's been coined this. Expressive individualism. Here's how it's defined. It is the view that the whole point of a person's existence is to be authentic. That for individuals to be authentic, they must align their lives With their deepest desires. In other words, what feels good to me, even if authority disagrees, is right and cannot be wrong, and everyone must affirm my decisions and my perspectives. To disagree with and not affirm these decisions and lifestyle and perspective is morally wrong. Okay, let me put this in some catchphrases that might help you understand what this means. You hear these all over our culture. You be you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. Live your truth. These claims are everywhere. And since I started thinking about this, I just, my my antenna kind of went up, and I was, became a lot more aware of it. So I'm watching the movie Brave with my kids. Okay? It's a good movie. The the point of the movie is that Merida, the main character, rebels against the expectations that are placed upon her by her family. And she becomes her own person, and at the end of the movie, this is what she says. But I know better. Our fate lives inside of us we only have to be brave enough to see it yesterday I'm watching a commercial for American Idol and the judges tell the contestants who have moved on to the next round are you ready for your real life to begin meaning that life doesn't start until you achieve your musical dreams and you reach fame and it's everywhere those are just two examples And once I've determined my identity based on my feelings, what I want to do, what I want to be, part two of expressive individualism. For societies to be authentic, they must applaud individuals for aligning life with their deepest desires. I'm going to ask you a question. In this worldview... Who is the ultimate authority of your life? Me. I am the ultimate authority of my life. So the question then, who's in charge? Who's in charge of my life? In this ideology, I am in charge. My desires and feelings must rule my life. I must live them out to create my being. And then I have to find, secondarily, a group of individuals who will affirm, validate, and celebrate that being. You must affirm my feelings. You must affirm my behaviors. And when I find that group of people, then what we'll do is we'll all agree together, and that group becomes my authority, and we will turn and attack anyone who disagrees with us. Do you see this in our culture? Both sides, conservative, liberal, all the way across the board. Our truth is right. And I will attack anyone who does not agree with that. This view, expressive individualism, stands completely contrary to this. It is completely contrary, because from the perspective of authors who wrote the words in this collection of history and letters and poetry and songs and narrative over the course of 1,500 years, their view was, I am not in charge. Putting myself at the center of my own world to prop myself up as the king or the queen of my own little kingdom was what these authors called idolatry. They claim that it was a different authority outside of myself. And that the course of human history pointed to one ultimate authority who stands above my feelings, my preferences, my desires, everything. He's the God of the universe, timeless, unchanging, all-powerful, sovereign, all-knowing, ever-present, and as the Bible puts it, made manifest in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And the Bible is the story This Bible is the story between the tension between God giving us his authority because he loves us and he wants to see our best that we would flourish in life and the struggle against that authority. Why should I submit to that authority? That's the story of the Bible, but is that not our struggle as well? That, that's, what, that's what our life as believers is. It's that struggle. What I want to do this morning is show you one glimpse into that struggle. It's a letter in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote, Colossians. Would you turn there with me if you have a Bible or your phone? I'm actually going to put this up on the screen as well, so you can follow along if you'd like. A little background. We're going to, we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 4. Now, Paul was a church planner, and he traveled all over Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey and Greece, and he planted churches everywhere. But the thing about the church in Colossae, that was the name of the city that this church was planted in, he'd actually never been there. He didn't plan it, and he was visited by one of the leaders in the church. His name was Epaphras, and Epaphras came And met Paul and shared some good things about the church that was happening. But he also shared some alarming things. And he asked Paul, would you write a letter back to this church encouraging them based on some of the issues that I'm seeing? This book is about that tension. Our struggle with authority. I want for me what's best for me versus God being the ultimate authority. When the church was formed... The people had put on a new identity, an identity that they were to put off themselves and the other philosophies of the age, and they were to put on a new identity under the authority of Jesus. Their new identity was who God said they were. Their behaviors and lives fell under his authority. Okay, let's dive in. Chapter 2, verse 4. Here are some of the words of warning that Paul gives to these group of Christians. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In other words, that sounds really good. You know, I just, I wanted to make a side note here. You be you. You should love yourself, live your truth. It sounds really good. It sounds loving, doesn't it? Colossians 2 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Colossians 2.23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, the philosophies of that age Paul is saying to them, don't be fooled by the ideology at this time in history. Let me remind you who the ultimate authority is, the overarching person who created the world. Philosophies come and go, but this person is in charge. He's invisible and visible. He's seen and unseen, and his name is Jesus Let's flip back to chapter 1. And Paul is going to talk about the authority of Jesus. Colossians 1 15. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus is in charge. Colossians 2, verse 9, talking about the authority of Jesus. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Skip ahead two verses. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And there he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In these passages, Paul is claiming that Jesus is the ultimate authority. He stands alone as the ultimate truth giver and sovereign Lord of the universe. And it's all because of what he did. Nothing that we could ever do. It's not about us. He defeated death through his sacrifice. He offers salvation and escape from hell. He changes our future. And for those of us who claim to be Jesus followers, who claim to be disciples of Christ, this has significant implications because if we say that we belong to Jesus, if we say that we belong to him, if we say that we want to obey him, if we say that he's an important part, he's a, he's preeminent over all of our life. Jesus himself says, then follow my commands. Our life is a response to what he has already done. And you, if you have been a part of Mount Helena for any period of time. You have heard from this stage multiple times. Can this be trusted? Can we trust the Word of God? And time and time again, JR has done it, Jason's done it, Tyler's done it, I've done it, Corey's done it. Yes. And here's why we can trust the Word of God, we hold it up as God's love letter how he wants us to view him, to follow him, to love him, to respond to him. It's his message to us, how he loves us and he wants us to have a life of flourishing. And so, to recap, do not be persuaded by the philosophies of this age. I mean, we're talking, I mean, it's been coming here, we're talking like 30 years. 30 years that this has been a a dominant philosophy. And, And then, let me remind you, who is the ultimate authority? He's timeless. He's overall. He never changes. Who is that? It's Jesus. And so, therefore, who you are, your identity, our identity, is tied to his authority. I'll say that again. Our identity is tied to his authority. And so, we're going to jump ahead to chapter 3. And Paul explains. That we can't be fooled by those ideologies. And other people, as people under his authority, we have to embrace the identity that he gives us. So, what does that look like? Paul calls us to put off those false selves. I'm just going to read to you what's in the Bible, okay? And I will let it speak to itself. This is in the Bible. This isn't Jeff's idea. This is the Bible. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, if you follow, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you, meaning your old selves, your old self, has died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When we embrace the idea that we are not our own authority, excuse me, when we embrace the idea that we are our own authority, he says we put on a false self. That is not our identity. Walking in those desires that are not from God are called sin, and we deceive ourselves That this false self is going to bring us ultimate fulfillment and happiness. So what are some of those false selves? What are those things that Paul in the Bible says are false selves? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality going to define that for you. Sexual immorality is any relationship outside of a man and a woman in marriage is sexual immorality. Put it to death. Impurity. Passion. Evil desire. Covetousness. Wanting what somebody else has. Because that is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. If you're following God, if you're following Jesus, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, put them away. Put these away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And don't lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here there is not Greek or Jew or uncircumcised uncirc- or uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or Ukrainian or American or black or white Slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. With Jesus as the authority, we don't have to go find a group of people that agree with us. We don't have to find people to affirm us and segment ourselves away from others because he invites everyone. No matter where they come from, no matter what their background is, To join together under one authority as a community. A beautiful tapestry of individuals all coming together under the authority of one person. Jesus. So what does that look like? What does a community, that tapestry, that beautiful community coming together under Christ is all in and all. What does that look like? Okay. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, So you must also forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, his father through him. Take off your made up identity, cast it aside and put on his identity. And then you all come together under one banner, one community And that is called the church. That community is us. I am not like you. I have different preferences. I have different ideas. I come from a different background. But I submit myself to the authority of Jesus, despite my preferences, in order that we would become a beautiful community in unity. New creations who have stripped off their false selves. Their selves where they're the king or the queen of their own little kingdom, and they come under the authority of the king. That is our calling. That is our identity. What makes expressive individualism so dangerous? So opposed to the gospel? So opposed to the Bible? Because it's built around the false god of individual desire. The Bible makes it clear we have to be careful to not naively follow our own desires, but the point of life is to follow God's desire for our lives, to align our desires with him, his authority, not my own, which is kind of scary, actually, because those statements sound really good. Be true to yourself. Love is love. It's, they sound really good. I want, to, I want to love other people. I want to bless other people. I want to see people fulfilled and happy. But ours is different, as he says here. It's a culture of thankfulness and forgiveness, a culture of love that is tied to sexual integrity, of humility and compassion, of selflessness and not to live your own truth. So, if I decide to follow this, if I decide that what he is saying is true, I mean, really, can it be trusted? Is God good? Is God love? Because, again, like I said, it doesn't feel very good not to love or affirm someone who just wants to be happy. Because the commands to embrace God's sexual ethic and to turn and run from anything outside the bounds Of a one man, one woman relationship, the commands not to seek our own gain, but the gain of others, to give up ourselves for the least of these the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, your neighbor, the commands to put away slander and offense and anger and obscene talk and unforgiveness are these for our good? Can they be trusted? Can he be trusted? And you know what? That's the whole point. That is the gospel. That's the invitation to the gospel. Would you come and join us? Would you come and understand that Jesus is not unclear about the cost of following him? I have determined for myself what Jesus is offering is not a restriction to living my best life now. But rather it's good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. It's an invitation to life real life, it's an offer to goodness, it's an offer to flourishing, it is not, a, is not an offer to follow a bunch of rules, and then I get to go to heaven. It is an offer, an invitation to life. Can it be trusted? Can, can that invitation be trusted? Our culture looks at that invitation as an antiquated antiquated set of rules and stories that don't speak to our lives right now. And even if they did, they can't be trusted. God can't be trusted. But you know who can be trusted? Me. I could trust me. Because I know me. And I'm a good person? You think about yourself. Are you a good person? Mm. I hate to break it to you. You're not. You know your thoughts. That's what God calls sin. It's sin inside of our heart. And we need him to break the power of sin over us. We believe the Bible can be trusted. That Jesus and his authority can be trusted. That his authority is for us today and his goodness is for us today. And it's for you too. Jesus died. He was raised from the dead. He defeated death. And he's sovereign over all of creation from all of eternity. And he invites us to put off the old self and to put on his righteousness for a future today and forever. If you have never done that, if you have never accepted that invitation to walk into life, I invite you to do that today. The invitation of the gospel, the good news that there is something more than yourself. Yourself is pretty lonely. And when you change your mind and you reach a group of people and you change your mind and they turn their backs on you, it's pretty lonely. But Jesus is that invitation of the gospel. If you would like to accept that, come talk to me. Or we'll have a prayer team up here to my left. You can come talk to them as well. But for the rest of us, we know that have accepted Jesus. We know that putting off the old self is really hard. Are you struggling with that? Because I am. It's hard to put off our old self. So we're going to work on that together. March 2nd, it was a Wednesday. It began a period of 40 days on the Christian calendar. Does anybody know what that Wednesday is called? Ash Wednesday, that's right. And it began the period of what, what's that called? Lent, that's right, Lent. Okay, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with Lent, uh, we're in the second week of it, and it commemorates Jesus' sacrifice during his journey into the desert for 40 years. And a lot of Christians use, 40 years, 40 days, that's a long time. 40 years, 40 days. And a lot of Christians use this time to turn their eyes away from themselves and to use it as a time to focus on what Jesus did for them and all of human history. So leading up to Easter, people pray, they repent from their sin, they give sacrificially to the poor, they do simple living, or they deny themselves simple things like sweets or caffeine or social media or whatever would help them refocus their lives on Jesus to resubmit and reaffirm that they are under the lordship and authority of Jesus. And I believe this is a good time to do this. Think about what Paul has said in Colossians, to put off the old self and to put on the new self. I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to take just a little pause, and I want you to think. What is one thing leading up to Easter that has been a selfish desire in my life that I need to? To readjust in order to be selfless like Jesus. What's one thing in my desires that I need to change and realign my desire to be like Jesus? Go. How can I better adjust my life to come under his authority? His authority is beautiful. It's life-giving, and it's an invitation to something bigger. Because when we come under his authority, we truly have found our true identity. Let's stand. Thank you, Lord God, for this reminder. God, we want to come under your authority. We know that our identity as believers is tied directly to your authority. Thank you for your kindness. It's hard to give up ourselves. It's hard to give up control. It's hard to give up our pride. We want to submit ourselves to you, Lord. Thank you for your your kind leadership, your kind authority, our king who wants what's best for us. God, I appreciate and I'm so thankful that your word is true and it is right and it can be trusted. God, we trust you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us and lives again so that we too can have life with you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.